The Connecticut Commerce and Municipalities is known for working hard on behalf of its municipal members at the state capitol and for the many successes it has had over the years. Each session, we endeavor to bring you behind the scenes at our legislative policy team navigates the hundreds of bills that can impact municipalities. We are excited to once again bring you under the gold dome where decisions are made that will impact you, your town, and your family. We're going to speak with legislators, the attorney general, and local officials from CCM's board of directors on topics like the car tax, PFAS, solid waste, and more. It's February 7th, the opening day of the 2024 short legislative session, and we want to welcome you to the Municipal Voice, live from the state capitol. The Municipal Voice of the Connecticut Conference of Municipalities podcast in association with WNHH LP 103.5 FM. CCM's Municipal Voice podcast continues to present a key forum on important state local issues. The views expressed do not necessarily reflect consensus views of CCM or member municipal leaders. And with us as our first guest, we have State Representative Michelle Cook. Michelle, thanks for joining us today. Good morning, and thank you all for being here. Also sitting, we got Brian O'Connor and Randy Collins from our public policy and advocacy team. Uh, so first this morning, we wanted to talk about uh, general overview of the legislative session. What are you looking forward to? What do you think is going to happen this session? Well, as you know, this is the this is the sprint of the legislative mm -hmm. sessions, not the marathon. And so we have a very short session and traditionally everybody tries to put everything in the short session like they do the long session. So yep. we're from today to May 4th. Um, I'm hoping that we really rectify and continue to move forward towards educational funding, our commitment mm -hmm. to early childhood education, which we know affects everybody um, from birth to aging out of our, our beautiful world. Um, I'm really hoping that we also look at recruitment and retention in a variety of different job arenas, okay. as well as figuring out what else we can do for municipalities, education, seniors, veterans. Um, you know, but at the same time, we know that it's not the budgetary year, so we have to be careful about what we do and stay within mm -hmm. our means as well. Great. Uh, you brought up the uh, retention of police, firefighters, EMTs. Um, what specifically are you looking for on that issue? You know, I think we have to really look at how we respect the folks um, that are in blue, that protect mm -hmm. us every day, that put their jobs on the line. And so for the municipalities that have removed their pensions, I think we need to look at bringing those back. And I also think that we need to look at what we've done with the police accountability bill and see if there's anything else that we can do to re readdress that and codify the things mm -hmm. that people have a problem with. Um, at the end of the day, I think it's about respect, but it's on both ends, right? Yeah. So that's kind of where I'm at with that. Um, we also have to know that they are putting themselves in harm's way and we have to protect them any way mm -hmm. that we can. Brian, what's, uh, what's CCM thinking on this? You know, this is one of our key platforms or issues this year. I think one of the things that we're trying to address is not only the volunteer towns, but also the career towns that are having issues with firefighters, making mm -hmm. sure that we have proper coverage. Um, so we're looking for a task force uh, for the group okay. uh, to get going with some recommendations. I think the other thing, too, uh, Representative Cook just mentioned on the police accountability bill, is that a hindrance to recruitment and retention? You've seen a lot of retirements over the last few years. I think it's important for us to uh, take a closer look at that and see if there could be some changes. Great. Uh, you also mentioned education being very important to you. Uh, Randy, what, what are we talking about for education this year? Well, I know last year one of the one of the huge things, huge wins for our municipalities working with the legislature was the inclusion of an additional 150 million dollars in education mm -hmm. enhancement. Um, I know we've really been looking forward to working with legislative leadership of how that money is actually going to be max, you know, used. How do we maximize those dollars for the best impact for children? Um, it could be a little bit of an issue uh, of mm -hmm. a legislative fight of exactly how those dollars are allocated. Um, I know the governor has some ideas because it is a tight year, so. It's something that we're going to be working on 
Again, we don't have a lot of new money to work with, but we want to make sure we're using the money that we do have allocated to the best, uh, yeah. the best effect. Great. Uh, Brian, what other issues while we have uh, Representative Cook here would you like to uh, discuss? Well, I think one of the key issues that uh, we'd like to discuss is just a sustainable funding source mm -hmm. for firefighters uh, cancer relief fund. And I, you know, uh, Representative Cook has been a prominent uh, advocate for that. And so I don't know if you have any insight that you might be able to provide or if there's opportunities uh, going forward, you know, whether it be a revenue intercept or a direct appropriation. You know, I think that that's been something that we've been working on collaboratively, and I can't thank you all for coming to the table. It's going on, what, almost seven years now? Right. Um, when we started really having this conversation outside of this building, which I think really mattered um, when we talk about how we were able to, to do the cancer fund. Um, you know, but we also know, too, that firefighting is not the way that it used to be back when mm -hmm. our parents and our grandparents were around, and so we didn't have the worry of synthetics and all these chemical-based situations that yeah. really put our firefighters in harm's way. And so we see this high rise of cancer. We mm -hmm. have to take responsibility for that and, you know, trying to figure out where that balance is. And I know that there's been this back and forth push about where it belongs and how we fund it. Um, but we definitely owe it to our men and women in blue to, to have that direct funding stream. Um, it's been able to work the way that it's been working, but I do know that if the cancer continues to be on the rise that we, you know, we have to really look at how that becomes sustainable. So I think that there's been a variety of different ideas that are put out there, mm -hmm. but the minute that we say any of those ideas on any type of public forum, somebody's going to freak out about it and, and come back and say, oh my gosh, you're going to do that. So I, I think that I'd really like to have the opportunity to continue to have those conversations before people panic and say, oh my gosh, that's what you're going to do. I think awesome. that, you know, one of the things to look at is is the collaborative effort that I, and Michelle really led this and probably been one of the more contentious issues that we'd had. Mm -hmm. um, and I think Michelle really drove, you know, brought us together to find a middle ground because I think we all agree on the end goal. And it was just, OK, how do we get there, you know, collaboratively with the firefighters, with our municipal leaders, with the legislature to say, yeah, we all agree we need to get there. What's the best way for our towns and cities and our firefighters to, to address it? So awesome. Uh, Randy. Do you have any questions for uh, Representative Cook? Um, you know, as I said, I think we really want to look at the education issues. Um, beyond just that education enhancement dollars, um, what are some of the other things that you're looking at coming down? Uh, I know early childhood education uh, is a big thing. What about the start to early kindergarten? I know that that's been kind of raising some concerns over how that was implemented or how it was enacted, but how it's going to be implemented. So I know that you've got some districts that are full full blown and they're ready to go because we see that um, what's happening with our children is there was a three year age gap of when you can start kindergarten. So you can be four years old or seven years old in the exact same classroom. And we know that the achievement gap has been such a crisis for us and that continues to rise. Um, the other concerns that we have that we have parents that are putting their children into kindergarten when they're not potty trained and not ready to go to school. So this was really about balancing it out. And we were one of the very few, I think we were one of the last five states that were, that had such a gap in our kindergarten age. You know, we put in legislation. It wasn't something that was done behind closed doors. It was something that was very public and it had been talked about for years and years mm -hmm. and years. But what we're looking to do, I think, is work with the parents that find themselves in a, in a situation. That's why we gave the liberties to the, the local boards of education to, to be able to work with the parents. And if there's a preschool or a doctor involved and they don't feel... We gave a waiver opportunity as well. Um, you know, I think that the situation that we have that's on the other side of that is really about the early childhood education and about having enough availability for that as well. Um, we need to pay our early childhood educators more money. We need to have that commitment from the state 
Um, but we also need to have that commitment from our municipalities and mm -hmm. from our businesses. And I think that this is going to be a public-private partnership to, to blend those um, things moving forward. But when you talk about education, if we start our children behind and we start them in an achievement gap situation, we can't really expect them to catch up as they age. And our society just doesn't prepare that way. So I think that that's what we have to do and continue to plug forward. Although maybe we didn't make everybody happy, we have to recognize the good for our children. Thank you. Awesome. Uh, so you mentioned you know, the partnerships on that and you mentioned municipal governments. How important is it to you to work with municipal leaders on some of these issues? I think it's extremely important because at the end of the day, we're all working for the same cause. And it can't be about you did this, I do that. It's got to be about we have to do this and it's got to be a collective conversation. Yeah. And so, you know, my relationship with CCM has been fantastic. And I, you know, it's not only a working relationship, but these guys are, t are my friends. And so I know that I can trust them and call them and ask them questions and they're going to give me the honest answer. Yeah. And I hope that all of our, my colleagues and our elected leaders do that with not only CCM, but their elected leaders as well. But I also think that the elected leaders in the municipality level have to really reach back out to their elected officials mm -hmm. too. And not just once when they need something, but that has to be a continued conversation. And you know, if you need to have a weekly meeting and it's a 20 minute phone call just to catch up to say, here's where we are. And it doesn't just stop at the town manager or the selectman or the mayor. It also has to be about the boards of ed chairman and about the city council folks and, and what have you. So it really does go both ways. Um, you know, so it has to be a partnership. And if we don't do it and we don't do it right, Mm -hmm. We're never going to get where we want to where we want to be. Excellent. Um, so, as we mentioned, we're in the short session here. Do you have any other priorities uh, that you're personally invested in for this session? So, I find myself at the my priorities are at the bookends of life, at the early childhood end, and at the aging end. Okay. Um, really making sure that our municipalities work with our educational leaders and and get what we need to get done there, and also working with the early childhood and, and funding that accordingly. Education is of the utmost importance, mm -hmm. but let's go to the end of that. And we also have to make sure that folks that are in our nursing homes and our long-term care facilities are also cared for yep. respectfully, but their workers are cared for and, and paid respectfully. Um, and, and that's why I say that early childhood really affects all of us, because mm -hmm. if we don't have any of that, we don't have nothing else. And at the end of the day, in the middle of that, it's people that are working. Yep. So how do we get people out of their house, back to work? Um, paying them a livable wage, mm -hmm. but at the same time respecting the businesses um, that have to employ them as well. So for me, I kind of find myself in a variety of different, um, in a very different lanes. Yeah. Great. Brian, uh, anything you, you heard there that you wanted to comment on? No, I, I was just going to comment on the education uh, component that you mentioned before. There's, a, there's loads of studies that basically say if you're not reading at a proficient level by third grade, mm -hmm. the outcomes for that child versus someone who is, has attained proficiency at the third grade are vastly different. Yeah. And so I think to the extent that we can um, you know, work with you on the early childhood, I think it's very important. Well, and to your point, there's a, the saying is from birth to, th birth to third grade, you learn to read. Yeah. And from third grade on, you read to learn. Mm -hmm. um, and, and to that, that's, that is vitally important. Foundations matter. And we also know that about 80 to 85% of our prison population have some sort of learning deficiency. So if we invest on it, mm -hmm. on those folks early on, think about what the savings would be at the end. Yeah. And I use the word investment because it's an investment in our future. Awesome. Well, Representative Cook, thank you so much for speaking with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much, guys. Yeah, thank you. Good luck this session. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> and off we go.
State Representative Irene Haynes, first, and who is also the first select woman of East Haddam. Yes, I am. So dual roles. Um, what, one thing I want to talk about is that unique role. Um, what is it like being a municipal leader and a state representative? Um, actually, it works out pretty well. Um, one job actually complements the other very much. Uh-huh. I think one of the things that you know we do as legislators up here is we hopefully increase, um, you know, the government's help to municipalities. But mm-hmm. then every now and then there are things that really make municipalities, you know, hurt their budgets more, such as the early voting. Great idea, but yeah. we just looked at our plan for the early voting for the primary, and it's five thousand yeah. dollars for our town for to pay for all the people to work there. Mm-hmm. And we have a, a, a maximum amount from the state of ten thousand five hundred to take care of that. So okay. that's only four days of the for the primary. And now we have 14 days ahead of us. So we clearly don't have the money to do early voting the mm-hmm. way that they thought that it might. So these are the kind of things that it's a perfect example of how as much as I think it's a great idea to have the state help us with the early voting and yeah. take care of the, that bill, doesn't pay enough. So we need. I'm going to, I'm going to be one of many municipal leaders that are going to reach out to the Secretary of State's office to say, hey, we've got to do something more for these municipalities because yeah. it's not enough. So it, it really does complement each other very nicely. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, looking ahead, just in general to the session, what sort of issues are you looking to focus on this year? Well, as ranking on higher ed, um, we're working on uh, a number of initiatives as far as workforce development. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love to see more um, concentration on what we need in our workforce and how do we get those people trained. Yeah. Whether it's our young people coming out of high school or whether it's... Um, People that need to be retrained, right? Some of the some of the people that are the the workforce that are leaving a lot are are tradespeople. Mm-hmm. So we need to we need to back that up. People who are um, manufacturing and, and and the machinists, that kind of thing. All of those people are aging out, and we need to replace that that workforce. So we're going to have a little desert. So one of those things. Those are the kinds of things that I always like to work with yeah. in higher ed. I understand we have you know funding issues this year. We have a very tight budget. Um, I know the schools are looking for more money to help pay for that. Uh, you know, so that's going to be definitely something that's going to be in the works as far as conversations as to how to fund the schools mm-hmm. you know, necessary to do the job. But that's something certainly that we need. We need to get people to work. Yeah. yeah. Brian, Randy, thoughts? Yeah, I was going to say, you know, one of the initiatives that CCM is working on is actually trying to help people find careers within municipal government. So we've been working with DAS as well as of one of the regional COGS on addressing that. And I think it's it's an important issue, you know, developing a pipeline, but also an interest. So I think that's, you know, as far as workforce development, uh, you know, we, we think that's a key initiative to focus on. Yeah, and I, I would actually also like to throw something on the table that I do all the time, is, is that especially as a municipal leader, you know, going back to that question, our public safety sector is in dire straits as far as they don't have the the uh, the money, they don't have the, the workforce, they don't have the volunteer base anymore. Um, we have to do something about the training. We have to come up with a, a better way, a cheaper way to get them trained and get them you know through that um, to be able to get people into those positions. And again, whether they're paid or volunteer, we need them. You know, when that tone goes off, if we don't have somebody answering that tone, that's a problem. And, um, you know, as a, as a municipal leader, the, um, that's one of my, my huge um, you know, concerns, and I think at the state level, there's got to be something to do. We have um, Office of Emergency um, Services that is 
strapped for people, I think. I don't know that it's, it's staffed enough to handle what it needs to make sure that public safety is addressed. And it, it needs addressing for sure. And you know, CCM, we've talked about that a number of times. Yes, we have. I keep bringing it up. Um, one of the things, I mean, I saw education got a kind of a jump, a uh, little bit of a head start by a, with a Monday committee meeting. Um, one of the concepts that they're going to raise um, and that committee chair Jeff Curry had mentioned was, you know, mandate relief, education mandate relief. Obviously, unfunded mandates are a huge issue for CCM and our municipal members. Do we have any idea of what we're going to be looking at? Because, again, in a non-budget year where, while the state has a nice surplus, you know, there's not a lot of additional money that we're going to be looking at coming, but... What, what do you see, what opportunities for towns to spend money more efficiently or even save money? Um, I think those are some big things. And you know, any ideas of what might be coming down in that mandate relief? Yeah, so uh, that's a great question because um, one of the things that I have been working on particularly is the professional development that the teachers are having to mandate and go through. Um, profession, uh, the professional development is you know training for the teachers and keeping them abreast of the, the newest and the latest and the greatest. At the same time, they're, um, they're, there's only so much time in a day, and there's, o there's 180 days in which these children have to be in their classrooms, and they have to teach. So what's happening is, is that the two of them are absolutely colliding as far as being able to have the time to teach versus having the time to do the mandated professional development. So this is something that um, I've actually been talking to Kathleen McCarty, the um, ranking member of Education Committee, for a number of years since I've been here, since 2018. And this is something that we really want to address. Um, the, um, I, I tell a quick story. My father used to go to the doctors, and he used to take all his medications every year to his checkup because certain medications are canceling others out, all that. we got to do the same thing with our professional development. There are things that they've, they've now added, and there's things that they've been doing since day one that there's maybe not necessary anymore. So they are creating a council to actually look at that. And that came out of last year's legislation, and they're, they're, that's something that came out of our meeting on Monday, that this is something that might be going through to another level of, of uh, legislation to get this council to actually really hone in on that and make those, make those cuts of mandates, you know, and try and get rid of some of them. Um, you know, every year we get a book of mandates, and it seems like it gets thicker and thicker every year. And um, again, going back to the municipal, that hurts. You know, that's, that's tough. And when they don't come with money, or not enough money, it's it's too hard for these towns to do it, do that work. Yeah, and so unfunded mandates are always one of our perennial issues. Uh, Brian, what, what do we worry about when we worry about unfunded mandates? I think what you're looking at is Connecticut's overly relying on the property tax. So yeah. when you put on another mandate and someone says, well, it's not that much money, but cumulatively, they add up. And I think what happens now is we're seeing municipal budgets you know, they, they have the same inflationary increases that a household budget has. Mm -hmm. And you're looking at, we have to make decisions. And what some of the cuts impact services. So I think that's one of our concerns uh, overall, with, uh, any kind of mandates or any property tax exemptions. Great. Uh, so switching hats for a minute here to first selectman hat. Okay. Uh, what's going on in East Adam that's exciting for the year? Exciting in East Haddam. Well, there's always excitement in East Haddam. Um, we ha actually have, um, we're right in the middle of uh, creating something in our village, mm -hmm. which is right on the on the river there. Beautiful, beautiful spot. And we have a redevelopment agency that is working on um, some financing for that um, okay. for the town. They're looking at um, working with DOT to maybe 
reconfigure some roads to make the village that much more attractive to developers. Mm -hmm. We're looking at a um, a uh, brownfields issue there, so we're yeah. trying to get that cleaned up, and we have a study going up for that. So we're hopefully checking all the boxes so that we make it nice and you know clean transition into where a developer can come in and actually develop our village into something more attractive. Yeah. Um, we used to have our town hall right in the village, which was a absolutely gorgeous spot, mm -hmm. and the view is spectacular. But now we, we vacated that and we've moved into into Moodis, which is a section of East Adam. That prime real estate is now available to be developed and to create mm -hmm. a, you know, kind of a wonderful hub. It used to be a shipbuilding okay. village, so we can go make it go back to this commerce that was once there and create, you know, wonderful commercial, walkable kind of village. We have an airport mm -hmm. there. We have the Good Speed Opera House there. We have uh, the Gelson House restaurant there so far, um, but we, you know, we definitely need some more development. There's a yeah. bookstore. There's Julia Balfour is a design firm that has moved in there, so we do have some some great things. We have a new developer that just moved into Society Hall, which is one of our, you know, historic buildings, and mm -hmm. he's putting in a brewery, kind of a oh, brewery cool. tap room on the bottom floor, and some Airbnbs in the middle. So that's kind of exciting. So it's it's just on the precipice of turning into this, you know, gem. And it's always been the gem, but yeah. now it'll have more for people to come and visit. But we have about 300,000 people a year that come in just to go to, to like Castle State Park. Okay. We have Devil's Hop Yard. We have a company called Getaway, which is a national organization, a national company that puts together these places where you can literally go and lock your cell phone in a little box somewhere. Okay. And then just enjoy the weekend, enjoy the, you know, the, the beautiful weather and the beautiful scenery. We have hiking trails galore. We're situated between Boston and New York. The, I'm giving you a, 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 a tour. Great advertisement. Oh, yeah. Great advertisement. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm, so I'm, have, I'm almost sold. You're, you're, it's working. Know, yeah. I tell you, I can't yeah. wait for the brewery to go in. Yeah. I know. It's going to be great. It's going to be a little small, so you're going to have to like get That's there early right. or stay late, one or the other, or stay all day. You know, we'll see what happens. <laughs> Uber. <laughs> we'll get Uber. you. Exactly. We have Uber. So, yeah. So, we've got a lot of things going on. It's very exciting. It does. Sounds like it. Now, you talked about DOT helping you with some of the stuff. Is transit-oriented development a big part of this? We are. East Adam is is, is a very rural town. Uh -huh. um, we do have dial-a-ride, and they do come through town. And I'm actually talking to River Valley Transit about getting a bus stop in town because we don't mm -hmm. have one. We don't have any traffic lights in town. Okay. Um, we have one light that turns red when you can't go over the bridge because it's open to mm -hmm. uh, boating traffic. So without any traffic lights and that kind of thing, there's not a lot there. Yeah. Um, but we still have plenty. Of, we have 10,000 people going across that bridge every day to go to work. Yeah. So it's kind of more of a bedroom community. But we still think we have, you know, wonderful rural character. We have, the, again, the state parks. We have unbelievable trails and that kind of thing. So I think we have a lot to offer, but we need to get a little bit more transit in there. We have um, a... Um, a uh, commercial development that is mm -hmm. up and coming too so we're trying to get maybe some incubator space in there and it's a great place to live and work come on down <laughs> it sounds it yeah uh brian randy while we have the representative with us here is there anything else you wanted to talk about um the one thing i know we uh last year this is going to be the first iter um and this is kind of a dual hat issue for you um we have early voting starting this year yeah uh and i know that there was money allocated to kind of get us through the presidential primary which you know is a good will give us a little bit better understanding of what the, the needs for our municipalities are, but there was an additional funding to do the August primaries and then the November general election. Do we think that we're gonna be able to address and adequately fund that um, 
that new requirement that towns are going to have to carry? Yeah, I mean, I mentioned it earlier in our conversation. Right now, I just we just got our plan to the Secretary of State to get it approved, um, and it's uh, it's costing us five thousand dollars for these four days, and we have ten thousand five hundred. So you can do the math and realize that the next primary in August is going to deplete that money. So we'll have nothing for the fourteen days when we have the general election. So we're, again, we will be reaching out to the Secretary of State. We're going to look to CCM to help us. We're going to look to COS to help us. Um, but, yeah, that is not going to cut the bill. And I don't know how. We only have one voting uh, spot, you know, district in our town. Um, I don't know what these towns and cities that are bigger and have more voting locations. I'd imagine in their, in their the primaries, you know, that kind of thing, they'll probably have just one location in town to just be able to handle that. But um, I can't see how they can do a general election with three or four locations in a town or city. That's going to be unbearable. So this is, you know, another thing that happens when the legislature and people get involved in making things better. You got to understand the ramifications, you know, and or have the funding available so that we can do it. So we'll see. It's also complicated because you need new voting machines too. We that's do down the road, yeah. Yeah, that's in our capital budget, and we'll be talking about that soon, too. We're right in the middle of budget season now, and we're looking at health care dollars going way up. We had a 20% increase in our health care. Wow. So, yeah, we have a lot of cutting to do. Don't take the auto property tax. We can't do that. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not without a resource or funding. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, funding is funding is tough, and it's, it's going to be a tough budget year. Yeah. Awesome. Anything else, you guys? No, I, I think we just appreciate you coming on our podcast. And we look yeah. forward to working with you this session. And I love it that you have that municipal perspective along with the state representative role. And, and it's, uh, it's unique and, and it, uh, it's very beneficial both to East Adam and to CCM. Well, thank you. I appreciate being here. Thanks. You are listening to the Municipal Voice on WNHH 103.5 FM. All right, we're now joined by Senator Ryan Fazio and Senator James Roney. Senators, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Pleasure. Um, so, uh, first of all, could you each give us a little uh, brief description of what your role is here? Uh, actually, we yes, should sure. also introduce uh, Rep uh, Senator James Maroney as well from Milford. I don't I know did, if you said I that. James, James I Maroney. Yeah. <laughs> We're having a sound problem here. It's very loud. But my name's uh, Ryan Fazio. I'm the state senator from the 36th district, so Greenwich, Stamford, and New Canaan. I'm in my second term. Mm -hmm. I'm the ranking member of the Energy and Technology Committee and Planning and Development Committee. Uh, so energy and, and local uh, regulations are, are very important to the time I spend up here. And I'm on the Finance Committee yep. um, and the Transportation Committee. So quality of life, cost of living, mm -hmm. economic growth are also very important to my uh, work here. A lot of important stuff. Uh, thank you. I'm uh, James Maroney. I'm the state senator from the 14th District, which is Milford, Orange, West Haven, and a tiny piece of Woodbridge. I am uh, co-chair of the General Law Committee. We focus on mainly consumer issues, so anything that would really touch uh, Department of Consumer Protection, which is really a wide range of, of issues. Um, Vice Chair of Veterans, Ranking Member of Regs Review. Then I'm also on uh, Finance, Education, Higher Education, and Energy. Great. Uh, so first up, uh, I'm going to go with uh, Senator Fazio. Um, you're on the 
Task Force on Affordable Housing. Uh, what do you see happening with that this year? So we've had some pretty interesting conversations in the off season, and I would say that they've been constructive. Um, historically, the issue of housing and local control have been, I think, pretty contentious, and rightly so, mm -hmm. because some of the proposals that have come to the floor of the House and the Senate um, or, or rather past committee in the Housing Committee and the Planning and Development Committee, I think really went too far in taking away mm -hmm. local discretion over planning and zoning and housing policies. I think we have a great tradition in this state of local democracy and local discretion where communities are engaged in issues. Um, and we need from that framework to work to increase the affordable housing stock and the housing stock generally. Um, so I think, you know, uh, bills like Fair Share and Work Live Ride went too far past their skis and taking away local control. Mm -hmm. But I think to the credit of the majority leaders, um, Rojas and Duff, the uh, the majority leaders task force on housing has been a constructive uh, conversation uh, with all different stakeholders at the table. And hopefully we can find a way to both um, protect local discretion and control over housing and zoning issues mm -hmm. while increasing the housing stock. And we've basically tried to develop or we're trying to develop on that task force a menu of options, for lack of a better term, a yeah. diner menu. So a mm -hmm. big menu um, of options to increase the housing stock. Um, and hopefully we can do that in a less contentious and adversarial way between localities and the state in a more collaborative way in the mm -hmm. future. Great. Senator Maroney, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, housing is economic development, right? Yeah. You look at right now, Chiefa estimates we're short 92,500 affordable housing units in the mm -hmm. state. We're only building 5,000 to 6,500 housing units a okay. year. It's 18 years to at that pace to get the housing that we need. We're also short 100,000 workers. We have almost 100,000 open jobs. Again, correlation, not necessarily causation, yeah. but you can't live in a computer. You need somewhere to work, somewhere to live if yeah. you're going to come here to work. And so... Um, really, we need to look at this as an economic development issue. Great. Brian? Yeah, you know, I pose this question for both of you. You both have diverse districts. You have kind of an urban area, urban communities, but also rural and more suburban. How do you balance that? As far as it relates to housing, yeah. Yeah, and we actually have a very diverse housing stock. When you look at it, we have capes, we have large houses, we have... Uh, parts of my district that don't have sewers and parts of the district where uh, along the coastline you have a tenth of an acre lot. So um, it, it is a balancing, balancing act, looking at the, the different needs of the district. Uh, but it does in some ways represent the different needs of the state, right? right? We do have a diverse state with rural areas and smaller urban areas and a lot of suburban areas. So uh, it is helpful to get the different viewpoints when you're coming up here as well. Great. Yeah, uh, I represent a, a fairly dense and urban district, um, probably the most among Senate Republicans and, and, and more so than, than most in the Senate generally. Greenwich is pretty economically and ethnically diverse, more than people uh, think it is, especially on the west side. We have four Title I schools, so more than 40% of the population being free and reduced lunch. The west side of town is pretty working class, middle class in many neighborhoods. Um, and we've done a lot in Greenwich in particular to increase our affordable housing stock by about eight or 9% in just the last three or four years. Um, Stanford's obviously a very diverse and dynamic city and I represent about 25,000 people in Stanford. 
again, these are complicated issues. And I think your question got to the nuance of actually advancing um, positive housing policies, which is why I think we need to leverage the discretion and the expertise of the localities and local leaders in order to move towards those goals rather than putting upon or imposing a one-size-fits-all solution. So I think the complexities of our different districts show why we need to leverage that local expertise and discretion while also moving towards that goal. Great. Um, Senator Murray, let's start with you next. Um, one thing we wanted to talk about was you are on a task force on uh, AI. Um, how will AI affect state and municipal government? It's an, an excellent uh, question. And I think that one of the things we did last year in a, in a bipartisan way is we did pass a law regulating state government use of AI. Mm -hmm. Basically, we just asked them to come up with policies and procedures and make sure you're testing that yeah. um, to ensure that there are no disparate impacts on our citizens. So that, that policy has been put forth. It, it's required to be posted publicly. So it's a good model um, yeah. for local governments to use so they don't need to go out and recreate their own. Um, but one of the recommendations you know, coming out of the task force was to look at um, ways that we can utilize AI within government, right? And how can we make it more efficient in interacting with our constituents? I think looking at what they call low risk uses yeah. like chatbots where you're making information easier to find. Uh, and as part of the legislation, we're gonna look at similar to what California did through their executive order, asking the uh, agencies to work with the workers to come up with recommendations and go through a committee, mm -hmm. come up with some pilot plans that we can use in probably, maybe not this year, but maybe starting next year that we can put in effect to make government more easy to interact with for our constituents. Yeah. Brian, do, does CCM have any positions on, on AI stuff? No, I, I think we're kind of waiting, waiting and seeing how it might impact us. I know when you look at, you know, let's say municipal employees, they might be concerned about the loss of jobs. So to the, to the extent that you think that this is a growth industry within Connecticut, how does that interrelate with some of the uh, responsibilities of local government? Yeah, and so the, there's good news and bad news, right? Let's start with the bad news. Bad news is over the next 10 years, they're saying 85 million jobs are going to be lost because of AI. The good news is over that same time period, 97 million new jobs will be created because of AI. Um, we have to keep in mind, though, that some job classes will be gone, right? And so we need to be very mindful about training opportunities, getting involving our employees and making sure we're giving them the opportunity to upskill and reskill uh, to be able to effectively compete and not even compete. I mean, they're saying that AI will make us 30% more efficient, right, in how we interact. So we need to teach people how to use AI in, in their jobs, how to use it responsibly understand the data privacy implications of taking constituent data and putting it into a public model like ChatGPT. So we need to provide tools and look at that. One of the things we did recommend, you know, being mindful of not putting mandates on uh, local school districts was that uh, looking at having the State Department of Education create um, professional development for teachers. SUNY Albany has done a great program with AI across the curriculum and really AI is going to be part of everything we do going forward. It's not gonna be one area. And so <laughs> instead of mandating to teach that, creating resources for the local school systems and also asking them to create model policies that the local school districts can choose uh, to implement, but at least they'll have something to start from. That's great. Senator Fazio, I don't know if you have any comments on AI or other growth opportunities 
in like the financial sector or or else. Yeah, well, some would say that there's been a lot of artificial intelligence in government for many years before the <laughs> technological revolutions of modern days. But I'm looking forward to seeing what comes out of Senator Maroney's committee. Senator Maroney's a great example that collaboration and listening and hard work is the best way to be a good leader. And the products that come out of his committee um, very frequently get bipartisan support because of his leadership and Chairman D'Agostino's leadership and the ranking members' um, positive contributions too. So I look forward to what uh, comes out of his committee and uh, I'm always happy to, to work towards positive goals with uh, him and other colleagues. It's great. Great. Uh, Senator Fazi, let's start with you again. Um, what are some other issues that you're hoping to focus on in this session? Well, I think cost of living and economic growth generally is always going to be the most important issue. Mm -hmm. Connecticut is a state with very high taxes, very high cost of living, and has been generally economically stagnant for a long yeah. period of time. Although we've seen a slight acceleration of the economy in the past few years mm -hmm. for several different reasons. One of the reasons is certainly the bipartisan budget deal from 2017 that imposed mm -hmm. a lot of fiscal guardrails that limited spe government spending, limited debt issuance, um, and built a rainy day fund so that we were actually able to afford a small tax cut last year yeah. for the first time in, in uh, uh, since probably I was a very, very young child. So um, in, uh, maintaining those fiscal guardrails, maintaining mm -hmm. a more prudent and middle of the road fiscal policy yeah. so that we can grow the economy. We don't overburden taxpayers. We can actually cut taxes in the future rather than return to the tax and spend ways of the past, yeah. I think is a top priority. And then I think there, in a short session, there are also, I think, um, regulatory reforms uh, that can improve economic growth. One mm -hmm. thing that Senator Maroney and I worked on last year was getting a um, licensing fee uh, cut through his committee on general law, mm -hmm. which I think will improve economic growth for middle class and working class people who require licenses to do their work. Yeah. Um, so those types of um, piecemeal reforms, I think, add up to something very positive for mm -hmm. the future of the state economy. Great. Brian, anything you want to respond to? No, I, I think it's fascinating. I think, you know, some of the, uh, the fiscal guardrails, you know, obviously sometimes if maybe there's some flexibility that people are looking for and how that may, um, you know, help facilitate some education funding and some of the other things that we've made commitments to. And I think, but at the same time, the fiscal guardrails have been very effective and reducing um, our unfunded liabilities and the pensions, which are very important to us. You know, just a few years ago, uh, you know, the governor and, and the previous governor tried to transition the teacher's retirement system onto us because of those pressures and the additional payments have helped alleviate that concern. So, you know, we appreciate all your hard work. I know it's a difficult issue because you got a lot of people asking for money and uh, spend here, spend here, but at the same time, the reason why we're competitive with the other 50 states now is because of those fiscal guardrails. Great. And as I just announced, the Senate's going to convene in about 15 minutes, so we don't it have- It probably our... won't. It probably won't. <laughs> <laughs> um, but while we still have them here, uh, Senator Maroney, any issues that you're looking to focus on during this session? Yeah, uh, thank you. Thank you very much. And again, thanks to uh, Senator Fazio for his leadership on the issue of trying to reduce the fees for occupational licenses. We do have, I think, one of the states with the most licensed occupations in the country. And so mm -hmm. that would be relief uh, for workers uh, to, to go there. So this session, you know, there are some issues in general law we're looking at cleaning up. There'll be a lot of issues that come 
there. I'm also looking at trying to find a funding source for the Early Childhood Trust Fund, increasing mm -hmm. access to high quality early childhood education. I mean, we know one, it's a workforce issue. Uh, Senator Biden testified to the Education Committee last year. There are 40,000 women who have not re-entered the workforce because they can't mm -hmm. find uh, early childhood education. We know families can't afford it. Our yeah. providers are not being paid adequately. And so, and we know what a difference it makes in someone's life. It really changes the trajectory of someone's life. Those interventions at zero to three are critical. So that's probably, it's one of my top priorities yeah. as well as I am working on a uh, housing related bill. It's more on the uh, down, down payment, uh, not down payment, but on deposit assistance uh, when you're looking to rent. So, yeah. Brian, any other questions you have for Senator? No, at this time, I just want to thank both of you, both Senator Fazio and Senator Maroney, for joining us today, sharing your insights on the next legislative session, and we look forward to working with you uh, in the upcoming three and a half months. I know it's a short session, but it's the same amount of work, just compressed. So good luck. Thanks thank for you. having us. Yeah, thanks for having thanks, us. Thanks for being on the show. We really appreciate it. Thank you. All right, thank you. Thanks for doing it. You are listening to the Municipal Voice on WNHH 103.5 FM. You're listening to the Municipal Voice. We're here with Attorney General William Tong. Um, so first off, we'd like to discuss your leadership role in the National Association of Attorney Generals group. Uh, how will that help Connecticut? So Connecticut's AGs have, have long been national leaders. Senator Blumenthal, when he was Attorney General, mm -hmm. was one of the leading AGs in brokering the major tobacco settlement, which is the largest cash settlement in American history. And then Attorney General Jepson was both chairman of the Democratic Attorneys General Association and the National Association of Attorneys General. So I get to follow in their considerable shoes. Um, the way it practically helps Connecticut is when we lead these big cases, like when I led in opioids mm -hmm. in helping to recover more than $50 billion dollars, um, or at the table negotiating. And, and that actually means we probably get um, pound for pound a, a bigger cut than we might otherwise get. Yeah. So we get a better share. And then often because if I'm a leader like I am on social media, for example, mm -hmm. or we're leading the generic drug price fixing case, I get a bump. Uh, I get an extra bump for my leadership. So so there's a there's a formula of how we chop up the money. And no, we don't get the same amount as New York and Texas and Florida. Yes. <laughs> they ask for a lot more. But um, I get an extra mathematical bump in the formula for leading and for dedicating staff and resources and lawyers. I've always wondered why we did so well in these settlements. Yeah. And now it makes sense because yeah. of your leadership and also the previous uh, leadership of uh, Attorney General or Senator Blumenthal and uh, George Jepson. Yeah, and if you're at the table, you know, you're focused on the metrics in the formula, kind of like the ECS formula back in the day, right? But if you're at the table um, and you're defining what we're, what our priorities are in the formula and how you're gonna split up the money, then I'm obviously focused on what's important to Connecticut and making sure that Connecticut does well in those formulas and those calculations. Great. Uh, one other thing we wanted to discuss while we had you here was the PFAS lawsuit yeah. and the potential impact on municipalities if the state is successful uh, going against the manufacturers. So, I mean, the, the impact on municipalities today is profound and just in the short time. Well, not that short anymore. It's hard to believe right. I'm beginning my sixth year as attorney general, which means, wow. you know, 
when Brian and I served together when we were 13 years old. <laughs> you know, it's been a while now. Um, but but you know, in just these in just these five years, we've learned how much damage PFAS has done, not just to our natural resources in our environment, but how dangerous it is to people and animals mm -hmm. and, and to our drinking water and how pervasive it is. It's everywhere. That's why they're called the forever chemical. It's otherwise yeah. known as Teflon or industrial Teflon. It's on the, the, the nonstick pans we use to fry our eggs mm -hmm. in the morning. It's in our shampoo. You know, it's in our Gore-Tex clothing. Okay. And 99% of human beings have PFAS. We have PFAS in our bloodstream oh right now. And, and so the cost of cleaning this up, not just for the state, not just for water systems, but for municipalities is astronomical and right now unknowable. Yeah. And so we've got to do as much as we can to recover resources so cities and towns can fight that battle alongside the state. Yeah. Brian? Yeah, I was going to say that that's one of our primary concerns is our fire trucks, the firefighter yeah. foam had it um, and replacing those or at least trying to clean it as best we can. That's a major issue. And I think even looking at our landfills and some of the potential issues that we may have with drinking water and, and what municipal responsibility is. And I think, you know, uh, we, we really are gonna back you up in your fight with the manufacturers and, and uh, yeah, anything that we can do to assist you would be great. Thank, thank you. And, and all of us, you stop and think about it, we live these risks every single day. So you want firefighters, I live in Stanford, so, big city and we see our fair share of of fires and firefighting incidents mm -hmm. uh, both from houses and and commercial properties but also motor vehicles i just passed by a car on fire by the way on 84 coming in this morning and so firefighting foam is um extremely effective mm -hmm. in putting out really dangerous and, and and volatile fires but once you use that foam, now it's it's been released, right, in the yeah. environment. And then in Stanford, we've got the Water Pollution Control Authority. What are they going to be able to do? What equipment do they have to install to remediate EFOS yeah. um, in, in Stanford? So that's just two examples. I live, by the way, next to the reservoir, and I look every single day at, you know, our water supply when I look out my window. Mm. And, and, you know, how much will it take to control and contain and remediate the PFAS uh, in our water supply. Yeah. Uh, Brian, do you have any qu other questions? Yeah, I was going to say, I, I think one of the other issues, if you wouldn't mind touching on, is big tech and the social media influence. Yeah. And how are you going to approach that? So uh, we have kids. And uh, if you're seven, if you're like me and you have a 17, 15 and 12 year old, you see this every single day. I, I'm looking at uh, my two phones here and when I when I began my press conference about our lawsuit against Meta, Facebook, and Instagram, I challenged the reporters and cameramen to put their phones away for the duration of my press conference and not to look at them, and not to not to grab your phone when the yeah. when it buzzes or it pings. And I said, "See if you can do it," a and most of them couldn't. <laughs> uh, and and we know that because I know I couldn't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and because because it's an addiction, and and, and we know that that. Uh, Meta targets young people like Big Tobacco targeted mm -hmm. kids a generation ago, our generation, by the way, to get them hooked on the platform because yeah. they make money if you're looking at your phone and the platform. And they use these they use these um, programmatic and technological devices like infinite scrolling. Mm -hmm. OK, 
um, where you don't have to change pages. You just keep scrolling on your yeah. phone. The developer of infinite scrolling called that behavioral cocaine. And, and, and they yeah. did it very purposefully to get kids on the platform, to keep them on the platform. And I don't have to tell you, they see a lot of stuff they shouldn't see. They see a lot of content that's very harmful to them. And it results in, in depression, self-harm, or worse. Great. Well, we appreciate your time with us today, uh, Mr. Attorney General, and uh, keep up the good fight on behalf of the people of Connecticut. Well, thank you to the cities and towns. You know, you're the basic building blocks of everything we do. Thank you for your partnership in fighting the opioid and addiction crisis. Thank you for your help in putting together the, 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 the Opioid Settlement Advisory Committee and serving on it. Mayor O'Leary, when he was chair of CCM, was a big part of of helping us land that plane. It was pretty complicated, right. it was. Uh, but we made it happen. And thank you guys for your role in that as well. Awesome. Attorney General, thank Good. you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Good? Appreciate it. Yeah. Oh, One no, oh. Representative Curry, thanks for joining us again. Absolutely. Glad to be Good here. to have you. Um, so you're currently serving your fifth term, is that correct? That is correct. Uh, and you're in the 11th district. What is the 11th district cover? Uh, I represent parts of both East Hartford and Manchester. Great. Um, so the OPM secretary indicated that the governor's budget will include cuts to education funding. What's your reaction to that? Um, it's part of the process. Okay. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, we, uh, we have a very set system here that allows mm -hmm. him to make uh, suggestions, whether they are uh, sensical or not, but yeah. uh, I think we have to fully understand the implications of what that would mean to a number of our districts around the state of Connecticut and a number yeah. of our choice programs. Um, but it is the start of another conversation in a midterm year, yeah. and uh, we look forward to uh, sitting tight on commitments that were previously made uh, to ensure that we continue to move the needle on education funding reform. Great. Uh, Brian, what sort of educational issues well, are CCM concerned say, with? One of our concerns, just even with the conversation that the OPM secretary had, is does that backtrack on ECS? We fought long and hard to accelerate the funding uh, for the towns that have been historically underfunded that we don't want to go backwards. And I think that was one of our fears, actually. And, uh, you know, to have it happen year one um, is potentially a, a setback. Now, I understand it might be other cuts. You know, outside of ECS, but eventually, you know, uh, you know, people might focus on that pool of money. So I, I think that's one of our concerns. And and always, you know, looking at special education, you know, that's another area of growth within education budgets. We don't want to see that um, take a step backwards either. And I think it's important that uh, you know it, that we celebrate the acceleration of the ECS formula, and it looks like that is likely going to stay in the budget as is. Um, but that we also at the same time have the conversation around what those cuts for those tuition caps and the magnet school tuitions directly impact and how that directly impacts Board of Education budgets and municipal budgets. Because uh, let's say, so the Senate senatorial, second senatorial district alone, that's a 11, $12 million hit that uh, savings that they would have seen otherwise. So I think you kind of have to, to put it all into context when we're talking about uh, education funding across the spectrum. Uh, Brian, other thoughts? You know, I, I think I think that the cumulative effect of those, you know, I, I think uh, Representative Curry laid it out well. 
uh, as far as how that would kind of roll out and how, what kind of impact that would have year over year. And I think part of what you're seeing, you know, if, if there are some of those dramatic cuts, uh, is disconnected youth. You know, I know you've been working on that, and I think that's an area of absenteeism. Schools need resources, and they need resources to help keep the kids in the classroom and to have them achieve uh, while they're in the classroom. So I don't know your thoughts on that, what, what you're working on there. Yeah, so I'm um, hoping that the Education Committee at our next uh, meeting in, a, in a, another week, I believe, will raise a title, an act concerning disconnected youth. And uh, so we wanna come at this from a number of different angles, including working with some students over at one of the magnet schools in Hartford for uh, free bus transportation for city kids because that gets directly at uh, chronic absenteeism, truancy, um, and, and just simply allowing kids the ability to access all of the opportunities within schools. Uh, also working with the United Way to see if there is a way to better coordinate uh, data systems so our nonprofits understand who they're working with. Um, so we're going to come at this from a number of different angles. Yeah. Yes. Apparently the Senate will be in five I, minutes. If I may add, I, I think part of that, some of the issues I, I think your committee is going to focus on too, is the pipeline and the certification process for teachers. You know, we've seen a, a, a large retirement go through uh, some of our school districts. How are you going to address that or what are some of the things you're looking at? Yeah, so uh, the commissioner over at SDE stood up a council that has been meeting diligently for uh, the last eight or nine months. Uh, I've had the pleasure of attending those meetings on a monthly basis. And, you know, it is amazing to hear these people work through what has been such a convoluted process for the last 30 years and really hasn't been touched. So to be able to blow up the certification process and create a really streamlined uh, three pathways for folks to get into education, whether that's our traditional, our alternate routes and our reciprocities and, and removing a lot of the barriers that have kept out some of our uh, some of the populations that we are seeking the most to get into our schools to be able to be educators. Um, so we're, I, we're hoping to have some really great recommendations out of that council uh, to, to come at that recruitment and retention issue. Great. Uh, are there any other issues that you're focusing on in this short session? Oh, gosh, we've got a lot. Uh, it's a short session, but the Education Committee is ready to go with a full agenda. Uh, mandate relief. I think okay. that is huge. And I think it's something that we hear both at the municipal level and at the Board of Education. Um, and so we've also been meeting with that group over the last uh, eight, nine months. And we're going to have some great recommendations to provide some relief uh, to our teachers, to our districts, uh, both monetarily and just in your time and yeah. being able to free up some of the teacher's time so that they can actually participate in professional development that really is impactful for them, that they really want to participate in mm -hmm. rather than being told, you have to do this year after year after year after year. And you know, everybody talks about bloodborne pathogens. I think we could all say, don't touch blood, don't touch yeah. human fluids once and be done with it. But you know, that, that's, that's, that's also an example of a federal mandate that we can't touch, but yeah. we're gonna make some movement there. And then we're gonna tinker around the edges and uh, just see where we can make some additional improvements within the systems and, and always having the focus around students, families, and educators, first and foremost. Great. Brian, any thoughts on that? No, I, I just wanna thank the representative uh, for coming here. As chairman of the Education Committee, you're very important to CCM. 
And I have to say that uh, Representative Curry, I don't know when you sleep because you go to all these different meetings <laughs> and you're always present. And that's so important as a, as a representative. So thank you. Absolutely. And I appreciate CCM's partnership in a lot of the work that we get, get to do. So I appreciate Thank you all. Great. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Awesome. All right. Well, we're going to be wrapping it up now, Brian. Thanks for sitting in with us today. Uh, I'd like to thank all of our guests for helping us kick off the session and uh, dive into these issues. Thanks to the folks at the Capitol who let us hold the podcast here. The Municipal Voice is a co-production by CCM, WNHH, 103.5 FM. Thanks to Harry Draws back at WNHH. And to the, thanks to the policy team for partnering with us on this one. Thanks, Brian. And of no course, problem. the communications team, Christopher Gilson is the producer. I'm your host, Matt Ford. Stay tuned.